bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm a freshly glowed up Erica. (laughs) Erica, we are kicking off our Asian Heritage Month coverage today. And we are joined by Anne Huey, who is the national food reporter at the Globe and Mail and also the author of Chop Suey Nation. And welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. It's so nice to be here with you. Hi, Anne. Hi. And so... You wrote a piece, which was the impetus for your book in the Globe several years ago, and it chronicled your journey across Canada, basically eating all of this quote unquote fake Chinese food. And so, you know, you you reference one of our faves in the book, Denise Balkasun, and how she was one of your editors. And so what was the whole process like in terms of being traveling with your husband and you know all of this kind of the Coles notes of the original of your journey yeah so I'm originally from Vancouver um and so I grew up surrounded by you know this very rich and kind of vibrant Chinese Canadian community around me lots of other Chinese kids around us lots of other you know Chinese language media tons of great Chinese food. I I was used to being surrounded by other Chinese people and and all of these kinds of institutions that supported this immigrant community. But every time I would leave Vancouver and we would go to a smaller town or, you know, drive out to drive out on a road trip somewhere, we would, we would find these Chinese restaurants that would be in the middle of these teeny tiny towns, you know, towns of 500 people or less, very obviously the only Chinese people for many, many, many kilometers around them. And it just struck me how different these people's lives were from, you know, someone like mine. There was also this like sameness to these restaurants that I found really fascinating. You know, how did it come to be that in the pre-internet era, uh, all of these restaurants somehow managed to spread this very similar template in that, you know, they all had the same restaurant names. They all had these dishes that seemed identical, their menus, their decor, everything seemed kind of identical. And I just found these places really, 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 really fascinating. Um, So I pitched this idea to the globe of traveling across the country and visiting as many of these restaurants as possible and try to understand, you know, where did they come from? Who are these people who run these restaurants? What are their lives like? Um, and yeah, Denise, she was the life editor at the time, or one of the editors in the life section. And she, she jumped on it right away. Initially, you know, the idea wasn't necessarily a road trip. I don't know what we had in mind, but eventually we realized, you know, this is very much a national institution, a a national, um, idea these restaurants are in every single province, every single tiny town across the country. And if we really want to, you know, capture the scope, I think, of this idea and and really kind of do honor to this idea that I had in my imagination, uh, a road trip made perfect sense. So things just kind of fell in place. And my husband happened to have some time available. Uh, We rented a car, 18 days, drove across the country. It was it was a it was a pretty awesome trip. That sounds really cool. And I, I posted on Instagram that I had finished reading your book. 
And several people replied and said they had remembered your piece in the Globe about particularly the woman in Fogo Island in Newfoundland. So can you share a bit about her story? Yeah, so her name is Huang Feng Zhu. She was, she is a woman whose photo I stumbled upon very, very early in my research. It was a picture of her standing in front of her restaurant. Her restaurant is in Fogo Village on Fogo Island. So for those of you who who don't know Fogo, uh, it is a small island off the eastern edge of Newfoundland. So, you know, you travel all the way to the eastern edge of this country, you take a ferry or a plane, and uh, you go to this even more remote island, teeny tiny, really, really, really does feel like you are on the edge of the earth. Um, And she lives there. And she runs a Chinese restaurant on this tiny island in a village of, you know, there's less than 2000 people who live on the island, but year round is, is much less than that even. So almost certainly the only Chinese person on the island. Um, and there was just this image of her standing in front of this restaurant. It's a white clapboard kind of structure. It has, you know, the faded Pepsi sign out front. It says uh, uh, the Guangdong restaurant. And she's just standing there. And The caption had a little bit about her story. It said that she runs a restaurant by herself. She runs it 365 days a year. I think it also said that she doesn't speak a ton of English. And again, like that, that right there, the image, this idea of this woman by herself in this very remote place, it just like captured my imagination. It was very much part of what sparked this whole idea for the trip to begin with. I just, I wanted to meet her. I wanted to hear her story. I wanted to know what her life is like. So we very much designed the trip around her. So we made Fogo Island the very last stop. It was the 18th day on the 18-day road trip. She was the last person who I met. And I don't want to give too much away, but her story was really so remarkable, but also so normal in the sense that it was the same kind of story that I heard from so many other restaurant owners, you know, day in, day out. Um, and I think that's really, for me, that that's part of what made this whole journey and this the Globe story and then ultimately the book so satisfying is this idea of chronicling these stories that seem so normal, so kind of everyday and common, but really once you start digging into them a little bit um, deeper, you find you know, just quietly remarkable, you know, all of these people, their stories, their struggles are just so remarkable. I have a real interest in food and the history of food and the, you know, the geologic, um, geographic underpinnings of food, because to me, following food is following culture. It's following the movement of people from history. And also, you know, as, you know, economic trends change. You could see it in food. If you think about globalization, the first thing you saw was pineapples in December in Edmonton. You know what I mean? And so I, I, I'm I, really, really curious. I think what was really interesting to me just when Aaron talked about your book and stuff is what did you, what do you think that that, you know, what does a Chinese restaurant literally in every corner of North America tell us about the Chinese diaspora and um, through time, I guess. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. I mean, food is culture and food is history. 
And these restaurants do such a nice job of capturing the Chinese story, really a lot of immigrant stories here in Canada. So the story behind these restaurants is that many of the very first Chinese men, mostly who came to Canada, they came as workers for the railroad uh, or to work uh, or, to, or, or to participate in, in the gold rush. So this is late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, many of these men had been recruited from China to come to Canada to work on the railway, you know, paid $1 a day for the $2 a day that all of the local white workers were getting paid. Um, so they're basically brought over here as cheap labor to, to do this job on, you know, this, this very important kind of nation building uh, job. Uh, but after that job was done, there, there was very quickly this fear that spread you know, that these Chinese men who had been brought over were going to take the jobs away from locals, that they were going to spread their disease, that they were dangerous, that they oh, were- how familiar. Yeah, <laughs> that they were participating in criminal activity. These are oh, a shocking. lot of these same <sighs> stories that you you hear yeah, yeah. about, you know, many other waves of immigration that would come after and the same stories that we hear, you know, echoes of even now with Asian immigrants, with Chinese immigrants in particular. So I, I think knowing this history and understanding it gives us such a, a good, gives us a much better context for appreciating, you know, the kinds of conversations that we have now around immigration and around race. So these men were suddenly viewed as a major threat, even though, you know, just not much not much time ago, they had been literally recruited to come here. And so they're all of a sudden, around that time, were a bunch of policies put in place to uh, prevent more Chinese people from coming to Canada. So this is when we started seeing things like the head tax put in place. We saw the Chinese Exclusion Act, which remains the only time that an entire ethnicity of people were literally legally barred from entering Canada. And then those Chinese people who were already here were limited in what kinds of jobs they were able to enter, what kind of professions they were able to uh, take part in. So basically all they were left with were working in laundromats, in convenience stores, or in restaurants. And so that's why you saw and you continue to see this long tradition of, of Chinese people in particular participating in these professions. You see many, many Chinese people setting up these restaurants, many of them actually along the same kind of um, spine of what was the originally the railroad. So you would have these Chinese restaurants in what originally were these little railway towns. And, you know, these were just people looking to survive, looking to cook food that locals would want to eat, you know, nothing too strange, nothing too weird, nothing too exotic, you know, something a little bit exciting, but not so the, too the early care economy, basically. Sorry, the early what care economy? I'm not familiar with that term. So like caretaking. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. to, to <clears throat> put it more bluntly, um, it, it was what was referred to as women's work at the time, mm -hmm. you know, so it wasn't. I'm so glad you brought this up for this particular podcast. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't indirect <laughs> competition, you know, with the white men who were otherwise participating in the labor force. I also want to point out that for a long time, Chinese women could not immigrate to Canada unless they were married to a white man or unless they were about to be married to a white man. And 
that is very particular. That's, that's a nice little detail that doesn't get brought up a lot, but it goes, it, it just goes to show how much the state is involved in, 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 in creating these cultural patterns or, and stuff like that. That's just my, my little piece to add in, (laughs) but like, yeah, yeah, I, I, you know what? I, I, I recently, not recently for, for a few years, that's not recently, but eater, the, the publication eater sometimes does a great job at tying cultural food to larger socioeconomic trends. That's what's so fascinating about, you know, this book you undertook because you're literally going through Canada tracing the, the like a diasporic history. And like, that's what I find so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And the same, not the same, but a similar book could have been written about so many of these other immigrant cultures and immigrant foods that we see now, you know, and I, I can't speak for Ottawa, but in Toronto, we have a really amazing wave of second generation millennial chefs who are creating really this like whole new cuisine right now of food that is kind of a mix between often their like classically trained, you know, French background or wh- whatever kind of food they 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 learned professionally here in Toronto, yes. uh, but maybe with their own immigrant backgrounds and kind of like meshing together these ideas and these flavors and these memories. And I think it's such a cool thing because it is oh gosh, original. So you know, it's it, so is, it is a brand new cuisine that exists right now because of the moment in time that we are in now. 